0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. With the growing controversies in higher education, for example, preferential treatment for the rich, for their children to get into schools, or even the plagiarism at the highest levels of the tenured professors. One wonders how parents and potential students justify the exorbitant tuitions of these institutions and the requirement in many situations to take on massive debt. Even in the private school arena, there is a push to acquire accreditation of some sort to prepare one's child's resume one of the reasons more parents don't homeschool is that they fear this will prevent their children from higher education opportunities. Yet, back in 2022, Newsweek reported that employers are not all that thrilled with the crop of college grads and that many jobs require on-the-job training, and that they found that a lot of these graduates from prestigious schools were not all that teachable and had ideas that were contrary to their own. So DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and woke standards in general are now affecting the culture in aviation, in the military, in industry, in medicine, and in education. Yet in all these fields, we're told or have been told that accredited individuals are at the helm. So Charles, we're talking about accreditation What does it mean? Does the Bible speak to this issue? And how are we to maneuver through the malaise that currently is existent in our culture?
0: I think most people, when they hear that term, if they're familiar with it at all, they automatically associate it with some sort of stamp of validity for an educational institution, which you referred to a few moments ago generally uh, an institution of higher learning, a college, a seminary, a university. The idea of accreditation in a broad sense, I think, is a biblical one. In this way, we see in the New Testament Paul's exhortation to the churches over which he had some influence and authority to have elders and deacons appointed and ordained in all these churches, and they had to meet certain qualifications. So going back to the earliest days as far as the church is concerned, there was a method of putting this in quote, quote, air quotes, accreditation whereby a man was tested and tried for the, his abilities and his godliness to serve in the offices of the church. That is, I think, a type of accreditation. But we see in that model who it is that's in charge and what's the basis for it. You know, in, in modern times, what we think of today, what most people would associate with accreditation, it really only goes back, as far as I remember, to the late 1800s, the, the late 19th century. One of the things you'll hear sometimes is that, well, you know, Harvard University is not accredited. I, I think at one time it was not. M- no, most universities and colleges and seminaries in this country were not, and the way that they would become uh, so in the 1950s, primarily. But the problem with that we have to deal with is the fact that. Accrediting agencies have become diverse and varied, and they generally, in order to be considered, quote, legitimate, have to have some connection with the U.S. Department of Education or some other federal government agency. And, of course, therein is the rub, because, you know, once you start playing ball with people who are humanistic and are enemies of God's law word, then in order to get their blessing, then you have to bow the knee to what they want you to do in some measure. And I've got several examples that we can talk about later of how that plays out, especially as it relates to Christian institutions.
1: I like, though, to go back to the beginning, so to speak. If you look through the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, prophets arise and they don't give their pedigree. They don't say, here's my resume. This is why you should listen to me. Um, We never see that. We just know that they're prophets. They they speak for God, and their testimony, you might say, makes it into the scripture because they're speaking the inspired word of God. And so we would say they have believability. See, the root of the word accreditation is credit, and credit is the root is credo, I believe. So when somebody is accredited, we're to believe that they have met the standards of which um, they're aspiring to give a service or to perform a function. Well, you go back to the New Testament, and quite frankly, the only one of the apostles that had worldly credentials would be Saul the Pharisee, who when he became Paul the Apostle... They weren't saying, well, he's a smart guy, and he's been through all this stuff. If he thinks this is a good idea, we should listen. No, they tried to kill him. But the apostles were fishermen, and the standard thing is, how could these people know anything? I mean, heck, Jesus was from Nazareth. What comes out of Nazareth? So we have to be careful that if we don't know what is being accredited and what's the standard, as you pointed out, we can end up with some very, very faulty ideas and false assurances. I think that's a lot of the reason that parents and students are willing to go into debt and and sacrifice a lot for so little because they still have this idea, well, it's accredited.
0: Yes, and I think uh, the example of the Older Testament prophets is a good one. Their ministry and their calling was unique, as, of course, was that of Jesus Christ. But what we find with the resurrection and ascension of Christ and the commissioning of the apostles and the building of the church of Jesus Christ is that, you know, a new phase in the development of God's program in that we all are prophet priests and kings. And in terms on the individual level, as Dr. Rastuni continually reminded us, it's the self-governing of the Christian man or woman, which is the foundation of a godly society. Our accreditation has to be measured against God's divine word. So, if an individual claims to speak for God, then, okay, how do we qualify that? What gives them the the credit, so to speak? And because Scripture has been set down, and the canon of Scripture, from my perspective anyway, is closed— we measure what anyone teaches or says concerning anything according to the standard of God's holy and divine word. There is no other standard by which we are to be governed. And of course that word must be rightly understood and rightly interpreted. So I think in the example of Jesus and the apostles that you used, that's a good example of how things can go sideways, so to speak with, in a broader sense, accreditation. But by the time of Jesus the people who were the authorities on religion, they had been promoting a type of religion that had strayed far from the simple message of the Old Testament and were teaching the traditions of men. That's why they had such a problem with Jesus. But I think it's, I think it's significant, as I said at the beginning, that Paul indicated in the churches that there should be some standard by which people who are called to serve should be measured or given some accreditation.
1: I think the Bible in the truest sense places that burden on parents. Now that may seem strange, but for example, in the case of an incorrigible son, one who refuses instruction and correction and the need for restitution should it arise, it was the parents who would bring the child to the city gates. So in that case, they were saying we can't give him accreditation. What we're saying is, we can't deal with this. He's not listening to us. We need to go to another of God's created institutions. But in terms of accrediting one's son or daughter, even in the marriage process, the parents, Rushduni makes the point that in-laws could be translated as circumcisers. In other words, the in-laws, the extended family were presenting a person for marriage, a a virgin, if we're talking about the woman, a man who is godly, can support himself and others, that they're accrediting their children. Well, we moved away from that, since we've moved away from the family structure by and large. And now, where do we turn to for accreditation? We turn to the state, state state-approved agencies. And back in January of 78... Rush had a whole position paper or essay on accreditation, and he pointed out that accreditation is an act of faith, that the root meaning of accreditation is, I believe, credo. So he points out that when a school goes to an accreditation council, it declares, I believe in you and in your word, and I present myself as one who seeks to be approved by you. If you approve me, then I need not be ashamed, for then I teach the word of truth and respectability. Hmm. Didn't Paul tell, uh, I think it was Timothy, in one of the letters, to show yourself approved? Was it to the Pharisees? Was it to the Roman officials? Who did he want him to be approved by?
0: Well, he wanted him to be approved by his fellow elders and deacons in the church, of course. And you, uh, you really hit the nail on the head there, because especially in the areas that I'm most familiar with, concerning Christian theological education, you know in the, the old pattern, it used to be that pastor would be trained in the church in which he was a member by the pastor under whose authority and the session the elders under whose authority he lived and worked in the church. So there would be a process of raising up young men in the case of the pastorate, to serve in these offices and the training would be local, And the approval would be local. Now, in the Presbyterian system, we have a regional body that is the ordaining body for men to serve in ministry. And in the old style, in the old pattern, and I think which is the more valid one, the fact that a young man coming to be ordained to the ministry was coming from a particular church with which the other members of the Presbytery were familiar. And he would be examined in his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures and In church history and various and sundry things. Well, at a certain point, and this is what you just mentioned, many churches, many denominations who were otherwise orthodox and traditionally conservative in their theology and doctrine, they began to move away from that model and establish seminaries or Bible colleges for the training of young men for the ministry or Christian uh, boys and girls in general in college. And they began to give that responsibility to teachers in these institutions, and then as time progressed, the institutions began to seek after worldly credit, and the government, like I said, I think it was in the 1950s, the the, the formation of accrediting agencies goes back further than that, but let's say if you've got a denomination of churches that is very large, and they have a, a large number of men who want to study for the ministry, well, they may find it helpful to establish regional campuses of theological training institutes and then establishing some sort of committee or body that would make sure that each of those campuses had the right amount of books in their library to facilitate proper study, that the men who are teaching in these institutions have themselves been properly trained in a in a valid institution that teaches orthodox doctrine and that sort of thing. But, you know, once that responsibility is transferred from the church, to the state and a state accrediting a- agency that's where the problems have arisen and uh, you know I can tell you as I began to pursue theological education and following my call to the ministry you know one of the things that I encountered early on was well you got to make sure you go to a seminary that's accredited mm-hmm. and, and even the the denominations themselves if you look in the standards of some of the reformed denominations they will indicate that in order to qualify for ordination among other things The candidate has to have had a theological education of at least three years. Some of them will actually put from an accredited institution. Others don't always put that. Mm -hmm. When when you're ready, I'll give you an example of why, where and how that can create some serious problems for a Christian institution.
1: Okay. How about let me make this point, and I think it will dovetail. Going back to that essay that Rushduni wrote in 1978, he points out that parents often rebel against the corruptions produced by the humanistic state schools. Christian schools are started and flourish, but soon evil voices begin to promote the need for accreditation, and they seek the approval of the same corrupt system they abandoned. Such men are no different from the Israelites in the wilderness journey who said, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. So then Rashtuni asked the question, well, whose approval do you seek? Where is your faith? There, too, is your source of accreditation. And he says, those who seek accreditation from humanistic agencies carry within their heart the principle of captivity and sin. They feel naked if they stand in terms of the Lord and his word And they demand of the enemy, come and clothe us with the rags of your accreditation. And then he makes this really bold statement. Accreditation is the humanistic form of circumcision or baptism. It summons the faithful humanists to show the marks of their faith and to witness to it.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what has happened. I don't know if it was Dr. Rastuni or Gary North who once said that, you know, people who place their children in government schools, it's tithing their children to the state. And you have a similar thing, as you just described, regarding these educational institutions. And it's interesting how we have the satanic model for corrupting the family in terms of local education of children. You know, many public government schools were event- were initially community schools run by families. And, you know, over time, those things began to be co-opted into government agencies, and the same thing with theological training. Now, I I will tell you one of two examples that I'm familiar with personally. When I was a student at Westminster Theological Seminary, from which I graduated in 1991, that institution was, as far as I know, still is accredited by the Association of Theological Schools, which is the major accrediting agency for seminaries and Bible colleges, but it itself is under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Education in that that secular humanistic body recognizes their authority to accredit institutions. But what's happened is, is these various seminaries in Westminster are certainly not alone in this. In order for uh, students to be able to attend, sometimes they will apply for student loans. Sometimes those student loans are granted from endowed amounts of money that are donated or tithe to the seminary other times they will go to the government for those loans so what's happened is that several of these types of institutions in order to be able to qualify to have their students apply for u.s based government loans they have to meet the accrediting standards of a regional accrediting agency not a nationwide theological accrediting agency and so when i was a student at westminster seminary during the time i was there these accrediting agencies they come on the campuses of the various institutions to do quote inspections and to you know recertify the institution and they'll say okay you have this many books in your library let me ta- let's take a look at your degree programs and there are other standards by which they judge these things well when i was at westminster and this was in the year 1990 this is easily researched and found but i was i was there when this happened the regional accrediting agency for that seminary came in and said, you know, we are looking here at your board of directors, and we're very concerned because there are no women on that board of directors. And so the administration of the seminary pointed out that the seminary's founding documents state that the only people who can serve on the board are either elders or pastors in denominations that recognize the Westminster Confession. I mean, I think it may have referred to another Presbyterian council. But the point is the the, the members of the board could, could only come from recognized traditional conservative reform denominations, the PCA, the OPC, uh, ARP, uh, all those. And none of those denominations ordain women as elders. And so they pointed this out to the accrediting agency. And the accrediting agency said, well, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here uh, rather generally, they said, well, that's too bad. No, you need to do something about this, or, or until you do, we're not going to give you a certification. Now, I happen to learn also, those of us who were there at the time, that the same agency went after a Jewish college in New York City and said, you know, you don't have any non-Jews on your board of directors. So it's something similar to that. Well, Westminster and that other institution, and maybe more than one, they had to seek legal recourse to protect themselves they eventually won but not after a number of years of litigation and i assume a lot of money so uh, they did you know receive the accreditation for that five-year period or whatever it was but this is an example of what happens when an otherwise orthodox and traditional institution be it a college a seminary whatever it may be like you said they, they go to the the state and say you know give us your blessing and we will do what you want us to do
1: all right. That is a great example. They sued so they could get the state agency to approve them. Right. Now, I had the opportunity not too long ago. I, I do contract work for people sometimes. Sometimes I help them write their software manuals so that it makes sense to the average person because, you know, the engineers or the computer scientists so just write the manual and no one's going to understand it. So... I've done that at times. And I also was contracted to help a Christian school who had been a K through eight school that now had gone into high school. They were going to seek what it would, um, what they'd have to do in order to be accredited to be an accredited high school. Now I should say that I made it clear to the people, even though it might cost me the work, I said, accreditation is something that should be for a Christian school, come from God, come from his word and the people affiliated, how faithful they are. But nonetheless, they were exploring it. So I was tasked with looking at the um, the blueprint for getting accreditation. I watched a bunch of videos and it gave me an insight into this process. So just to start off, To start the process, I think you have to give a deposit of a considerable amount of money so that they'll spend some time on you. And then there are all these pages and pages of describe what you do here, describe what you do there. And it really is when, when I read this recently about baptism and circumcision in a secular or humanistic form, it's like they had to bear their soul. How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? And so if you pass the initial step of, you know, paying the money, they'll come and they'll just like you said that they did in the seminary. So walk around, look at the library and, you know, you don't have enough of play equipment out here. So you need to improve that. Not, none of that had to particularly do with educating people. They really didn't want to know how well the kindergartners or first graders could read. That wasn't important. Well, eventually I was told. You know, figure out what they want to hear and just give it to them. Because everybody knew that they weren't going to keep sending people to watch you. And so if you just say it, then we'll get that accreditation. So it was like they were getting a union card so we can be part of this union. Well, eventually, the school decided they weren't going to, number one, make the changes and pay all the ongoing fees. Because at first, you might be given a preliminary or temporary accreditation pending regular visits, which then cost more money. And then even if you get accreditation, it's an accreditation for five years and you have to go do it again. And logically, when they only had a couple of high school students who, you know, that the grammar school was going into a high school, they weren't prepared to spend that kind of money because they didn't have it. It was like this dog chasing a bone, and even though I got paid for my work, and I was glad that they didn't pursue it, but I got to see inside what this is all about, and it, and, and the videos I watched, Charles, I wasn't looking at people who were actually teachers. I was looking at administrators, and they were scowling and, and whatever. It was like, they're going to toe the line, and I was like, ugh. I wonder what this is like on larger scales.
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, this is what happens when you go to the prophets of Baal for your approval. You know, I, I, I want to share another example. I, I just remembered this one. I, I didn't actually have this one written down, but I, I think it's a, it's a very good example in, in a slightly less you know, formal academic setting. I served a church in upstate New York for 18 years, and that was, those were the years in which my wife and I homeschooled both of our children. Uh, we were members of very large homeschool association for upstate New York, and there was also one for the New York City area and downstate. And one of the things that that organization did is they had a graduation ceremony every year, and there, there are others around the country that do the same thing, I'm sure, for students who had completed the requirements for 12th grade or however they defined it. And so our church, the church that I pastored, we also were involved in, and having a homeschool co-op at our church. And also, we supported mostly Christian, slightly fundamentalist organization who had as its goal to spend time in the capital of New York, Albany, and making sure that there would be a voice for Christian morality. And some of the things they got involved with was how the state of New York may or may not be impacting homeschoolers. And one area that I became familiar with was that there were parents whose students had completed their requirements for a homeschool education and some of these students would be applying to universities or community colleges in the areas where they lived. Now there was one there was a community college in upstate New York, western New York, I won't say the name of it. But this organization, this Christian organization that I referred to was seeking legal action on behalf of homeschooling parents because what was happening was is that these homeschool kids would go to this community college and say, you know, we want to enroll. And they, they would look at their records and, you know, all the stuff that the parents were required to keep by the state of New York's education department. And that varies from one state to the next. But at any rate, they would say, well, you don't you don't have a diploma. You don't have a high school diploma. We can't admit you. And so the Homeschool Association petitioned the or maybe, they may have even just started doing it on their own, awarding their own diplomas to homeschool kids who had finished the requirements. And the state of New York, as I recall it, said, well, wait a minute. The term diploma can only be used by a state-recognized organization. So you can't do this for homeschool kids. And I think there was some legal action about that. So this is another example where the state gets involved and declares its sovereignty over all areas of life, in this case, education. So it's a tough road to hoe when you uh, decide that you are going to do it God's way as opposed to man's way.
1: Yeah, again, this is a demand for control and for accreditation, and it's the first step towards creating a single and humanistic culture. So when teachers have to go through teacher's college, and really what they learn are the philosophy of Dewey and Horace Mann and whatnot, and heavily Darwinian, and now no doubt woke in every way, is that they're going to limit the passage to professions. And so, sadly, I know a lot of homeschool moms who proceeded to get themselves accredited, get a teacher's credential, before they started homeschooling because they wanted to make sure the state would leave them alone. Yes. And guess what? The state doesn't leave them alone. They're just buying this insurance in case it happens. Now, there's nothing wrong with insurance if the insurance is purchased from those who share your faith and like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association will go to bat for you if you're challenged But this always seemed to me like straddling the fence. And although I understand why they don't want to be hassled, I'll say, okay, I'm a credentialed teacher. But to keep that credential, you have to do ongoing service and training, and that costs money. And in other words, they have you. And if you look back on what problem the early church had, it's that they wouldn't get credentialed. They wouldn't get the license from Rome. Now, if they had, I mean, you don't think the officials said, look, just sign the paper, burn the little incense and go back and teach what you want. That would seem to be the most pragmatic thing to do and get on with it. Then you can teach people your faith. But isn't part and parcel of the Christian faith having no other gods before me? So when you give up what seems like so little to just be able to carry on and not question whether or not this is offensive to God, then I think you are truly straddling the fence, trying to be on both sides, but that rarely works.
0: You know, one of the things that my wife and I found in homeschooling our children in New York is that the requirements to do that or the rules and regulations to do that vary by state. There are some states, I think, and, and this is in the broader area of accreditation. Uh, we're not straying from the topic, I don't think. Some states, they have very minimal requirements, if any at all, and others are highly regulated. So in our case, what we had to do is that we had to report to the local school board or whatever it was, our intention to homeschool our kids. And then have been a few other things here or there. And except toward the latter years, we were pretty much left alone. But there were a few occasions where a new... A functionary would come onto the school board or whatever, the district, and we would get letters saying this, that, and the other, and we would either ignore them or we would write back and say, according to your own law, we're not required to do this. Please leave us alone. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew another couple who, at the time at least, they weren't particularly religious, but they homeschooled their kids, and they actually went to court to prevent the state from having anything at all to do with their teaching and their educating of their children, so that's you know on a ground level the things that people have to to deal with now in, in the area of homeschooling and, and the family. But I want to be quick to say this: I think that people legitimately ought to have reason to know that if their child is going to be taught something, whether in the home or in an institution, that there is good quality training or ability to teach. You know, it used to be. In terms of schools or education, these were community events. But then if you move on to another area, and I don't want to stray too far from the topic, but it's a similar thing. Like in the area of medicine, you know, if it used to be in terms of dentistry, general medicine, there was a certain amount of teaching, but there were a lot of cases, especially as the population of the United States moved westward, a guy could read a couple of books on medicine and go talk to a doctor about what he needs to do and then hang a shingle outside his door. And he was doctor so and so and they're you know, began to be a need for qualifications and certifications that was a legitimate one. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, the church has a concern that way, too, in terms of the, the ministry of the church and those who serve in it. Now, in the context in which I serve, in the Presbyterian system, the Presbytery is that accrediting body. And I don't think there's anything unbiblical about any of that, whether it be a local congregation that certifies a minister or a deacon or an elder, A regional body like a presbytery or a synod or whatever it may be. But the problem is, what is the standard by which those institutions are making those judgments? If it's anything other than God's law word, you're going to have problems and you're going off the mark of what God's law requires. So there is a reason people should be able to say, okay, well, I'm going to this church or my children are being taught in, in this family or that institution. And I have a reason to be confident that they're getting properly trained. But the question is, and this is what we've been talking about, who's doing the certification? Who's doing the crediting? Now, I I want to tell you one more thing before I forget about it. Okay. In the same upstate New York setting in which I was, I made the acquaintance of a man who's still a very close friend of mine, and he had become headmaster of a Christian school. Now, this was a, quote, unaccredited Christian school. They functioned. I think there were some minor things they had to do, but for the most part, they didn't follow the public school curriculum or anything like that. So anyway, he said, uh, and this goes back probably 20 or 30 years, he said when he became the headmaster, he said, I walked into the office one day, and uh, after shortly after he became headmaster, and he said, I noticed um, there was a woman sitting at an adjacent office that I hadn't seen the day or two before. I walked in, he said, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm the new headmaster. Who are you? Oh, well, I'm Mrs. Smith, made-up name. I'm the nurse. And he said... Oh, I wouldn't know where that we had a nurse. Oh, yes, every school has to have a nurse. So he said, okay, bear with me a moment. And he went and called a friend of his who was a, a, a councilman and asked him about this and said, no, it suggested and the school district can supply one to an independent school, but it's not, not a state requirement. So he said, okay, thank you. And he went in and told the lady and said, your services are not needed here. <laughs> so uh, there's another example of how people get confused sometimes. And, you know, okay, do, do some, does somebody, a student at a school, need some kind of medical care? Well, that's the parent's concern and the school's concern. It doesn't have to involve the state.
1: And you're making a good point here. Every time we outsource something that's a family responsibility, there will be consequences. So if you want to know how good the teaching is at a school... How about you show up there and sit in the back of the classroom that your child will be in for a week or two and see what it's like. See if this person has the kindness, the care, the concern for the advanced student, the average student, the slow student, because you could have children that all fit into that category. The outsourcing is such that we don't want to have the responsibility for it. Now you brought up frontier dentist, the frontier doctor, just because they hadn't gone someplace and gotten a diploma doesn't mean they weren't good at it. And we know that there are people who have diplomas who aren't good at things. It's kind of like the whole idea of the driver's license. Most people have driver's license. Therefore, most people are safe drivers. Not so much. Beauticians, barbers have to have licenses. Right. Means that nobody gets a bad haircut. Isn't that amazing? All we had to do was license this person, and now we have excellence. So I think a lot of time when people want to know, is this accredited? Does he have a license? It's a false sense of security, and it's your responsibility if you're going to pay somebody to take out a tooth that you're reasonably confident this person can do it. But you know why most people don't? Because they're not paying for it. Insurance is paying for it. And so if he's accredited and he's on the list that the insurance company will take, okay, that's good enough for me.
0: Well, and, and, and I'll come back to the church as an example. I mean, you, you go, we went back to what I said earlier concerning medicine and dentistry and, and board certifications and such as that. Somebody once made the observation that, you know, in order to be a doctor or a dentist or whatever, you have to be certified by a board before you open up your office and start advertising, come here for your family health needs or whatever it may be. So. The people who go to that have at least some, you know, on paper confidence that the person treating them is going to do a good job or where they get their haircut, as you said. Right. In the case of the church, and this, the the point that was being made when I was first, uh, this was called to my attention, is that the church is totally different. I mean, anybody can start a church anywhere in most places. Whether it be in their home or somewhere else and the first church of this or whatever it may be, and I'm Reverend so and so and I you know I'm self ordained or I was ordained by my neighbor or whatever it may be. And there's no regulation for that unless you, you know, live in a country with a state church. So therefore the responsibility rests on the members or the people who may want to join or attend that church to make sure for themselves and their families that they are attending a church that is a valid one according to the teachings of Scripture. Now there may be a, quote, safeguard within the structure of the denomination that would validate that. But, you know, the the existence of the seminary that I referred to earlier, where I graduated, Westminster Seminary, came out of Princeton Seminary, which at one time was the flagship Reformed Calvinistic Seminary in North America. But the only reason Westminster was formed, because it ceased to be that. And so these kind of certifications and plaques on the wall, they don't guarantee that it's going to stay that way if it is just like going to the hairstyling salon with all the licenses guarantees, you're going to get a good hairstyle.
1: Right. But let me go back to something you said, and I have a slightly different take. So you can have sessions, you can have governing boards, but just like everyone, there are sinners who occupy those positions now. So you're never going to find somebody who is fully sanctified in any role. Because this side of heaven, we're not fully sanctified. The problem I see and why a lot of people sort of bristle at the governing boards is that oftentimes those governing boards, and this is true in the church, it's true in corporations, it's true in the military. Instead of being servant slash leaders, they are leaders that you better listen to me or else. And so there's a sense that sometimes there's a circling of the wagons that go with these boards or these adjudicating agencies and such. And even if an individual person says, you know, this makes sense, we should accredit them, they're doing all the reading, writing, and arithmetic sort of thing, but they get stifled and say, no, we have this standard and you must adhere to it. So we saw that with vaccine mandates. I'm sure there are a lot of people who said, "Uh, I really don't want to do this, but you can't keep your job unless you get your vaccination. As long as we don't have individuals along whatever level of leadership or management repairing to what does the word of God say and what's consistent, we're going to have bad rulings. And therefore, we're going to have a society that conforms to the boot on people's heads. If I want to go to a practitioner who my friend says, you know, I had this problem and I saw him like three times, no drugs, anything, just some supplementation. And I feel so much better. And I go, I'd like to go to him, but he's just not accredited. Would he be accredited with organizations that like, no, we want to prescribe drugs for this. So It all goes back to, and I think this is even true in scripture in terms of which prophet you listen to, that if you don't know the word of God yourself, then you're going to go on personality, looks, status in the community, and not really judge righteous judgments.
0: Yeah, and I happen to be familiar with a scriptural example of what you just referred to in terms of how the people in these agencies tend to lord it over others. In John chapter 7, which I'm currently preaching through, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem, and the Jews are seeking to kill him, and they send the temple police, I'm paraphrasing somewhat here, but they send the temple police to arrest him, and they come back, the police, the officers, as they're called in the text, they come back to the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews, and they exclaim, uh, we've never heard anybody speak like this man. This is John seven forty-six. And it's interesting, their response, the Pharisees, the, the, the big shots, the elites, they say, have you been led astray too? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? In other words, who do you think you are? We don't believe in this guy. So where do you get off the boat saying he he, he speaks like a, a great person? So, yeah, this, this becomes the problem with human pride and all aspects of the humanistic approach to sanctioning or accrediting that which, you know, God has set aside to be his domain, his sovereignty over all things. I'll give one final example of how this played out in a religious institution. Another seminary, which I attended, this happened to be a denominational seminary. So unlike Westminster RTS, Fuller Seminary in California, th- th- those are independent institutions. They're not part of any denomination. The one, I- another one I attended was. And that denomination was committed to the confessional standards of the Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession Standards, and it had authority over the institutions, including the seminary and college. And there arose quite a big controversy about things that were going on that were being taught at the college in particular, and to some extent the seminary, that weren't in line with the traditional confessional standards of that denomination. And there was a big brouhaha about this. And one of the things that was brought up is that if we make all of the professors and the teachers subscribe to our confessional standards, guess what? We may lose our accreditation. (laughs) I don't know that that thing was ever completely resolved, but that was the first thing that was held up to justify compromise was we might lose the approval of the state.
1: Exactly. I actually have a funny story. My oldest daughter was being offered a golf scholarship to a university. And because she was homeschooled at the time, they have changed this, probably because of what I did or and what other people did. We are told that you had to prove that she had gone through a proper course of study. Now, we live in California. California is not exactly at the top of the list when it comes to high school graduates being proficient. But okay, so we went ahead and did it. So I had to document what she had done in her Freshman year, her sophomore year, her junior year, her senior year. And then they have this NC2A representative who's supposed to go through it. And I'm sure a lot of people get intimidated, but I wasn't going to be intimidated. So I come in with this packet that probably consists of a couple of hundred pages in terms of, cause they wanted to know all the books you had used and stuff. So I wrote that down. And then when we got to literature, they wanted to know the books she had studied. Well, My daughter was a voracious reader. If she had read one Charles Dickens book, she wanted to read them all. If she had read one Shakespeare play, she wanted to read them all. And so I made a list of all the books she had read in her four years, and I could see this admin guy, like, freaking out, breaking into a sweat, because now he has to translate and do this. Guess what? The NC2A said, oh, you said that she finished high school? That's great. (laughs) (laughs) so we've gone away from merit see that's the real issue it doesn't matter if you're meritorious if you can actually go ahead and perform a task what matters is if somebody else says you are and we don't necessarily know the backstory of that someone else i saw an article that at first i thought came from the babylon bee but apparently it does not that the FAA is now going to include in its hiring those who are mentally disturbed and physically disabled. Yes. Mentally disturbed. Okay. So I don't exactly know what that means. I don't know how they're going to define it. Axe murderers can apply now where they couldn't have before. I I don't know what mentally disturbed means, but this should make everybody pause. These accrediting agencies that said, John Smith is a doctor. This person here can fly a plane. If their standards for admission and then graduation are woke standards, that it doesn't really matter if you can do it. You tried. I remember one time in a homeschool co-op, a family complained to the teacher. The teacher gave a zero you know, it was a homeschooling parent, gave a zero because none of the answers were correct. And the mother was saying, You could have given them something. They took the test. In other words, <laughs> she wanted participation points. Right. And, and he looked at her and he said, How many points should I have given for that? And the mother was flustered and said, 17? <laughs> so <laughs> her her children would have gotten a 17. Now, let's go back in terms of something else you said, that I'm not necessarily challenging it, but I want to give it a better spotlight. Who's responsible for what children learn? Is it the state or is it the family? If I decided that my children were going to do nothing else but focus on music, and I never bothered to teach them anything having to do with algebra, am I wrong? And if I'm wrong, who am I responsible to? Does the lady next door have a compelling interest as to whether or not my child does geometry or has studied the tutors and the stewards of England? But there's so many things that are in this curriculum that's now accredited or approved that make no difference whatsoever. When you go to a dentist, do you ask him what his grades were in geometry? Mm -hmm. No. (laughs) Do you ask him if he ever took geometry? Not that I recall. No, not that you recall. (laughs) So we have these standards. So, yeah, but what if they don't teach their children anything? Then they're sinning before God. Who made the church anything more than advisory, teaching, you should make sure that your children know how to read. You can't do it, we'll help you. But the state has no interest in that. So if you're going to be so foolish as to prevent your children from knowing how to read, which incidentally, before compulsory education, wasn't really an issue. I love the reality that the Federalist Papers, that most people struggle with today in reading, even with a modern translation, these were articles that appeared in, I believe, New York newspapers in an attempt to have the farmers of the area agreed to the Constitution. So there probably weren't too many people who didn't know how to read.
0: No, and I think the standard model for many such writers and authors and students was the the tutoring model where people were taught at home or under the auspices of a tutor in a, somebody else's home. That's the way a lot of in, intelligent, uh, brilliant people learn foreign languages I believe Charles Hodge the great president of Princeton Seminary he he was tutored by his father and the center was the family and again if they see the need to establish some sort of institution to broaden the ability to teach more than one student that's fine but the problem is when you get involved with the state another way that the state sometimes try to bring what they would consider to be rebellious institutions to heal, is they'll say, okay, well, you know, you've got this Christian school here, or you've got this Christian home school association, and uh, maybe your students would like to participate in intramural sports with other students in the school district. Well, you're not going to do that unless you start teaching X, Y, and Z, or you abide by our curriculum or meet our standards. And there have been many otherwise fine Christian institutions that have caved on that one score, because they want to be, quote, popular with the masses. I think that in in wrapping things up, we could say that God's standards, God's law, does focus and is concerned with the issue of qualification. But as with everything else, the ultimate standard is his law word under the auspices and the authority of godly parents.
1: And maybe the accreditation standard should be something like this. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Since the Great Commission is our marching orders, then excellence, doing it well, is not something we do to get accredited by another human being, but that we know that We're storing up treasures in heaven and that we're responsible to our creator, our redeemer, and we count on the fact that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. So in terms of getting hung up with, we must have the state accredit us or some agency, just look all around you. Humanism is dying. What good will that accreditation be when Nobody cares anymore, and they want to know, can you do what I want you to do? Agreed. Well, hopefully we gave you something to think about. Out of the Question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. Talk with you next time.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.